Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. We are beginning a new sermon series called The Rise and Fall of King David. And it's called that because what we're going to be looking at is the rise and fall of King David. It's pretty straightforward. We're not getting clever with this sermon title this time. David is one of the most fully fleshed out characters in all of scripture. And his story is one that could be made into an HBO TV show. But we are going to begin with the first moment when David appears in the narrative of scripture. I'm going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And I invite you to hear the word of God. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve about Saul when I have cast him aside from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have seen among his sons a king. And Samuel said, How can I go? For should Saul hear, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and you will say, To sacrifice to the Lord I have come. And you will invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I myself shall let you know what you must do. And you will anoint for me the one that I say to you. And Samuel did what the Lord had spoken. And he came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. And they said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. To sacrifice to the Lord I have come. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And Jesse sanctified his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And it happened when they came that he saw Eliab and he said, Ah, yes, before the Lord stands his anointed. And the Lord said to Samuel, Look not to his appearance and to his lofty stature, for I have cast him aside. For not as man sees does God see. For man sees with the eyes, and the Lord sees with the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, This one too the Lord has not chosen. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, This one too the Lord has not chosen. And Jesse made his seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are there no more lads? And he said, The youngest still is left, and look, he is tending the flock. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we shall not sit to eat until he comes here. And he sent and brought him. And he was ruddy with fine eyes and goodly to look on. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord gripped David from that day onward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we're gathered here that we might lift our praises up to you, that we might hear your word proclaimed, that we might come to your table and experience your presence, that we might lift our prayers up to you. So Lord, as we reflect on your scriptures now, Teach us, speak to us, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our minds, 
that we might hear your word clearly. Help us to know what it means that you are king. Help us to know what it means that we are your subjects, your people. And help us to go out into this world with the understanding that you are seated upon the throne and only you are seated upon the throne. So Lord, speak to us now. We ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So a little background here. As we move into the story of David, some of you may be familiar with the narrative, but for those of you that are not, what is happening here? This is David's first appearance. But a king had been selected named Saul. He's mentioned there where Samuel says, how can I go anoint somebody else because Saul will find me and kill me? Saul was raised up as king over Israel, the first king over Israel, but Saul lost his way. Saul disobeyed God. So God has decided it's time for somebody new. So at this point in the story, there's this tension that's being built because Saul is still the king of Israel. He's still overseeing the army. He still has all the power, but God has decided it's time for somebody else. So David, as a young lad, is anointed king in front of his brothers. And the stage is set for some drama that's going to play out here. And in this passage, David's story begins with promise. You can see the way the writer of the scripture builds this story. We don't get his name until the very end there. You're wondering who this young lad is when you're reading it for the first time. But then he says David's name as if the people reading this would have known who David was. And you're wondering what's going to happen with this young lad that God has chosen. How is his reign going to go? When is he going to sit upon the throne? There's a sense of promise in this. As I said before we read the scriptures, King David is one of the most fully fleshed out characters in all of scripture. We actually get his story told twice in the Bible. You can read it in 1st and 2nd Samuel, but you can also go to the books 1st and 2nd Chronicles. 1st and 2nd Chronicles tell pretty much the same story as the books 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. But in Chronicles, it's a shortened version. It's condensed. And one thing that I find a little funny is that in Chronicles, it's all sanitized. What I mean by that, because I just got a look of perplexion there. What I mean by that is David's story is cleaned up. If you go and read First and Second Chronicles, you will not see anything bad about David. Anything that you would find in 1st and 2nd Samuel that could be construed negatively about David, in Chronicles, it's changed. It's either completely gone or a few words are changed so that David looks solely like a hero. The thought is that sometime after 1st and 2nd Samuel were written, some writers sat down and changed 1st and 2nd Samuel. They're clearly working from the same book there. They're working from 1st and 2nd Samuel because there's so many details that are the same. But the only difference is that David looks a lot better in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And I actually believe that it's that version that most Christians today understand when they think of David. It's good King David that they think of. There is a good King David in this story also. 
This might be the David that most of you are familiar with. This is the David who defeated Goliath. That classic story that we're actually going to address in detail next week and look at more closely. But this is the David who united Israel. Even when Saul became king over Israel, it was still fairly fragmented. And Saul was pretty much just a warrior. And as we've learned throughout histories, warriors don't always make the best kings. In fact, they usually make pretty poor kings because governing requires a different skill. But David was the one who pulled all of these tribes together and took them from not just being an army, but making them a civilization, a kingdom. Gave them a sense of common identity together. It was really under David that we see this kingdom of the 12 tribes plus the nation of Judah pulled together and be coherent in a way that they hadn't been during the times of the judges. And then David's also attached to the Psalms. The tradition tells us that he wrote the Psalms, that he was also a poet. And then you're probably also familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, which isn't great. It's not good, but people end up focusing on David's repentance. In this story, David, who already has many wives, who already is is king, he takes another man's wife for his own. And then to cover all this up, he sends that man to the front lines, basically ordering that he be killed. Now, David does repent, but it doesn't really help the guy that he killed, does it? It's not a very good story, but we tend to focus on David's repentance and say, look, he was willing to humble himself, which is true. We're going to focus on that story also in a few weeks here. All of that is good King David. It's the Chronicles version of David. It's the version that I think most of us are used to, but when you read 1 and 2 Samuel closely and you really go past the moment where he becomes king and go past the David and Bathsheba story. You see bad King David. And bad King David is actually pretty bad. David took life unnecessarily. I mean, we just mentioned the story with Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, but there's these moments where people are praising David for his ability to kill people. They say Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. And there's stories where David goes and takes people's lives just so that he can give a remnant of them to Saul so he can marry Saul's daughter. It's, it's brutal. There's a brutality to David's story. This is not a nice, kind, peaceful person that we are talking about. There's also a lot of evidence that he wasn't the best dad. Like I said, he had a lot of wives, which also isn't great but he had a lot of children as well. And he doesn't seem to pay too much attention to them. He's not a very active father in a lot of stories. There's one story in particular that we are going to, again, focus on later. But one of David's sons violates one of his daughters. Not great. And then another one of his sons kills the first son. And David does nothing the entire time to discipline them, to step in, to do anything. And then that son who had taken the other son's life, a few years later, he ends up raising a a revolt, a a rebellion against David and tries to take the kingdom from his father. 
His name's Absalom. You might've heard the William Faulkner book, Absalom, oh, Absalom. That's where it all comes from. This is not dad of the year. I think we can all acknowledge that. And because of that as well, David might not have been the best ruler. He's able to pull things together, but as time goes along, he becomes less and less effectual. He becomes more and more dispassionate, disconnected from the people. And within only one generation, everything he's built is going to fall apart. Solomon, his son, will take over and become king after David passes. But right after Solomon, when Solomon dies, a generation later, the kingdom is split into civil war. The northern part of the kingdom separates from the southern part. The people of God are weakened through this. And in the Bible, it sets up the stage for what's called the exile. Because the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are separate now, it's not united anymore. They're too weak to defend themselves when Babylon comes in and when Assyria comes in. The most traumatic event in all of scripture, the exile, the writers of scripture really lay it at David and Solomon's feet because Solomon wasn't trained well and Solomon ends up taxing the people too heavily. So there is a bad David and I want to tell you, there's actually more than just the things that I've mentioned when it comes to bad King David. But I want to take a step back because I'm picking on David a bit right now. I want to be clear with you all I don't think the blame for this lies all at David's feet. Because when you look at the scriptures and you look at the story before David comes on the scene, God never wanted a human king. God never wanted a human king. If you go back and you read 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22, which I'm going to read for you here, you see how clearly God didn't actually want a king, how God warned the people of Israel against wanting a king. 1 Samuel 8 says this, And it happened when Samuel grew old that he set his sons up as judges for Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his secondborn son was Abijah, judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not go in his ways, and they were bent on gain and took bribes and twisted justice. And all the elders of Israel assembled and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Look, you yourself have grown old, and your sons have not gone in your ways. So now set over us a king to rule us, like all the nations. And the thing was evil in Samuel's eyes when they said, Give us a king to rule us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For it is not you they have cast aside, but me they have cast aside from reigning over them. Like all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up from Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, even so they do as well to you. So now, heed their voice, though you must solemnly warn them and tell them the practice of the king that will reign over them. And Samuel said all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking of him a king. And he said, this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. Your sons he will take and set for himself in his chariots and in his cavalry, and some will run before his chariots. He will set for himself captains of thousands and captains of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the implements of his chariots. 
and your daughters he will take as confectioners and cooks and bakers. And your best fields and your vineyards and your olive trees he will take and give to his servants. And your seed crops and your vineyards he will tithe and give to his eunuchs and to his servants. And your best male and female slaves and your cattle and your donkeys he will take and use for his tasks. Your flocks he will tithe and as for you, you will become his slaves. And you will cry out on that day before your king whom you chose for yourselves and the Lord will not answer you on that day. And the people refused to heed Samuel's voice and they said, no, a king there shall be over us and we too will be like all the nations and our king shall rule us and sally forth before us and fight our battles. And Samuel listened to all the words of the people and he spoke them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his town. God tried to warn them. In this passage, God is allowing them to have a king, but it's God making a concession. It's God being willing to compromise because they are so set on having a king. But God warns them very clearly. This doesn't work out well. This really isn't the way that God wanted human beings to interact with one another, with one person lifted up in complete power over everybody else. And this warning against kings, it actually goes further than just Samuel. If you go back to Deuteronomy, when Moses, who had ruled over Israel as a prophet, but not as a king, is saying goodbye to the people of Israel, he tells them this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is about to give to you, and you take hold of it and dwell in it, and you say, let me put a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely put over you a king whom the Lord your God chooses. From the midst of your brothers, you shall put a king over you, and you shall not be able to set over you a foreign man who is not your brother. Only let him not get himself many horses, that he not turn the people back to Egypt in order to get many horses. When the Lord has said to you, you shall not turn back again on this way. And let him not get himself many wives, that his heart not swerve. And let him not get himself too much silver and gold. Again, in that passage, God is saying, look, someday you're probably going to come to me and say you want a king. But in that moment, wait until I've chosen someone. But you see in the Samuel passage, they don't wait for God to choose. They say, give us a king now. And then... Moses goes on to warn them, give them some conditions for a king. A king should not gather many horses. A king should not gather many wives. A king should not take all the money for himself. There's that line in there too that's oddly specific where it says, don't get the horses from Egypt. It's very, very specific. Almost like it's referring to something specific. Well, guess what? It is kind of set that one up pretty, pretty poorly there, huh? You knew where that was going. If you go back and read 1 Kings 10, 26 through 28, you'll read this. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he led them to the chariot towns and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver in Jerusalem as abundant as stones and cedar as the sycamores in the lowlands. And the source of Solomon's horses was from Egypt and from Q. Exactly what Moses had warned about, Solomon does. The same pattern that God had warned them about within one generation of David, 
it happens. We also know, if you know anything about Solomon, he was famous because he took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wives. That passage in Deuteronomy may as well be talking specifically about Solomon. And Solomon, he oppresses the people. He does heavy taxation so that he can collect all of these horses, so he can collect all of this gold. You see how quickly this whole idea of a king falls apart. How quickly all of the warnings that God and Moses and Samuel had given the people, how quickly those warnings become reality. God tried to warn them. And the truth of it is, human kings, they aren't great. It's not great. Now I say that, and we're all sitting here as Americans. Of course, we don't think human kings are great. I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I mean, it's in our blood. It's in our national DNA. The very reason this country exists was because some people got tired of having a king. But think about what a king actually is. A king is somebody who lifts themselves up. It's somebody who demands loyalty of everyone. It's someone who is supposed to be caring for the people who give them loyalty, but rarely ever does. A king is somebody who tries to raise up followers of themselves, who puts themselves at the center of all things. And when you realize that, I think you can look around at our own culture and see examples of would-be kings. Sometimes they're politicians. Sometimes they're celebrities, actors, musicians. Sometimes they're athletes. Sometimes they're business people. But we have people who constantly will lift themselves up, demanding our loyalty, requesting our loyalty, trying to portray themselves as greater, as somebody worthy of us following. And I think without really reflecting on it, we end up following. We end up going along with it. But human kings aren't great. That isn't the way God wanted us to respond to one another, to interact with one another. Lifting up somebody to where we follow them blindly to where we're not thinking critically about them, about who they are. It's a real problem. And it will lead to the same consequences that Israel had when it came to the kings. Remember King David, he's able to unite things for a little bit, but him being king sets Israel down this path that leads to oppression of the people. If you go back and look at the history of David's ancestors, it's not pretty with all the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, maybe you get two that are good, Josiah, Hezekiah. But go and read First and Second Kings, you realize David's story is a tragedy. The more and more you continue with it in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, it goes the way of tragedy. And it ends in that event of the exile. So human kings, they aren't great. And I do want to give David a pass here, okay? David could never be a great king because no human being can be a great king. And the more and more 
We give people that control over our own lives. The more and more that we follow people without really questioning the things that they say, the more and more we lift somebody up in our head as a king, the harder it becomes for us to acknowledge the true king. The book of Revelation is very, very clear. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Human kings aren't great. Human kings will always fail you. There is one king that we should bow to, one human being who deserves our loyalty because he was fully human and fully God. Jesus is the only king. Jesus is the only person who should be lifted up as somebody we should follow. When you come here to Stonebridge, you're not following me. You're not following our elders. We are all together followers of Jesus, who is the one true king. Jesus reigns on the throne. And when we're weighing questions over who we should be loyal to, who we should follow, who we should give our support to, the answer is always and only Jesus. And anybody else who wants to lift themselves up into that role, run. And the beauty of this is, you look at that history of all of those kings of Israel, it's a tragic history because they are flawed, failing human beings. But when you look at the picture of Revelation, when Jesus returns and he is on the throne, this world is restored, things function the way they are supposed to, and the good king is where he belongs. That's the hope that we look forward to. Jesus is the only one who can rule, the only one who should have that level of power. Jesus is the one that we lift up as king. Please pray with me. Lord, you warned us. You warned us human beings over and over again, Lord. You wanted Israel to be a a special people, a people unique to you, but instead they chose to be like all the other nations. Instead of being set apart as the people in relationship with you, they chose to be like all the other nations around them, Lord, forsaking their identity when they chose a king. Lord, help us to lift you up as king. Help us to follow you. Help us to be loyal to you first and foremost. And when we turn to the gospels, when we look at the way of life you taught us to live, help us to respond as though you are our king and we are your subjects. Help us to live our lives in the way you taught us to. Loyal to you, obedient to you. Lord, you are upon the throne. Let us rest in that and trust in that.
trumpet sound 